Well, good morning to everyone. Good morning, online campus, and good morning, city campus minus Leicester. <laughs> Let's start before we start the word this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. And Lord, as I preach today, I pray that your words will come true. As I speak, God, your voice will come through my words and touch your people, and we will all walk away with a greater revelation of your love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I've known several men who grew up not knowing their fathers. Their parents separated when they were young, and some of these men had an opportunity to meet their biological father when they were older. They found the contact details or the whereabouts of their father, and every one of them, without fail, went out of their way to meet their biological father because they all wanted to know what kind of person their father was. Psalms 42 says, As the deer panther for the water, so my soul panther for God. Nobody told the deer to pant for water, it just did. Nobody told the soul of a Christian to pant for God, it just did. All of God's children, irregardless of denomination, have a strong and healthy and natural desire to know our Father in heaven. So this morning, I want to talk to us about knowing God and His love. The New Testament is written in the Greek language. And in the Greek, there are different words for the word knowledge or to know something. I want to run us through the four main types of knowledge in the New Testament that also reflect the four main ways of knowing God in the New Testament. The first word I want to introduce to us is the Greek word gnosis. Gnosis is also the Greek word for science, and it means factual or intellectual knowledge, what is right and what is wrong. This is knowledge we apprehend with our head, is head knowledge. Everyone here has gnosis about God. If you've ever read one verse of the Bible, if you've ever been to a Bible study, listened to a sermon, come under some sort of Christian teaching, you have gnosis, you know facts about God. But as we pursue gnosis, which is a good thing, the Bible warns us of a pitfall that can happen as we pursue gnosis, which is that we can become arrogant and think that we are superior to others. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1 and 2, it says, But knowledge, gnosis, puffs a man up, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. It's possible to know lots of facts about God, but not actually know God himself. In the Old Testament, uh, sorry, in the Bible, there's a group of people who had lots of knowledge, but they didn't really know God, and they didn't love people. They were called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most theologically educated people in their time, but they didn't use their knowledge to love and serve people. They used it to raise themselves up and they begin to think that they were better than other people. They would tell the uneducated people, we educated ones can read the scriptures. You uneducated ones, you can read the scriptures. If you want to know what the scriptures really say, you gotta ask us. And they would go to the people and they would say, if you want to know how to walk right with God, you got to ask me because I'm educated and you're not. I will give you rules and regulations on how to walk right with God. But despite all their education, they didn't really know God. When God himself, as Jesus, came on earth and walked among their midst, not only did they not recognize him, they accused him of being in cahoots with the devil. 
That's like the epitome of spiritual blindness. In their same generation, there were men, people like Simeon and the prophet Anna, who when Jesus was brought to the temple as a child, they even recognized the child as God himself and they praised him and prophesied him to be the savior of the world. Simeon and Anna, they were not known for their great education, they were known for their godliness. Later on, when Jesus ascended, he left the ministry of teaching the scriptures to men. Men would teach men the scriptures. And he sent to the Jews what the Bible calls those who were uneducated and untrained. He sent them fishermen. The very learned Paul the Apostle, God took him and sent him to the Gentiles, but to the educated Pharisees, the ones he sent to them were the uneducated fishermen. Now, I don't want us to think that gnosis is a bad thing. Gnosis is a very good thing. It's from gnosis that we know what is right and what is wrong. It's good for a man to have good facts rather than wrong facts. It's from gnosis that we get doctrines and we know what to believe. So gnosis is a good thing. But the point is not knowledge for the sake of knowledge. The point is knowledge for the sake of loving others. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the chapter of love in the Bible. It's where it says love is patient and love is kind. And in verse 2, Paul the Apostle says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Paul isn't saying that prophecy is bad. He's not saying that knowledge is bad or faith to move mountains is bad. But what he's saying is that these things are not an end to themselves. Knowledge is not for the sake of being knowledgeable. Prophecy is not for the sake of prophesying. These things are given so that we may love men and show God's love to men. As we pursue more knowledge, as we pursue education to learn about the Bible, let's check with ourselves very consistently that we are growing in love and not in pride. So the first type of knowledge is gnosis, hate knowledge. The second type of knowledge is ginosko. Ginosko is relational knowledge, is the kind of knowledge you can only know about a person by having a relationship with them. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never ginosko you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus said, I never knew you. It's not that Jesus didn't know facts about these people. He knew enough facts about them to call them evildoers. You can't call someone an evildoer unless you know for sure they've done some evil. So he knew facts about them, but he said, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. The word ginosko is a very intimate and experiential kind of term. When ginosko is used in the context of a man and a woman, in some Greek lexicons, it translated as the act of sexual intercourse. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The Hebrew equivalent word for ginosko is the word yada, to know someone. See, in the Old Testament, when it describes a man having a relationship with God, the Bible doesn't say the man had a relationship with God. It doesn't say the man hung out with God or the man had fellowship with God. It said the man knew God. So the word yada is the relational term in the Old Testament. It's also the same word that is used when it said 
Adam knew Eve and she conceived. She became pregnant. And how many of you know if a man knows a woman and she becomes pregnant? It's not theoretical, no. It's a very practical and intimate kind of knowing. And from Old Testament to New Testament, that's the way God wants us to know him. We are called to know him through relationship. Husbands and wives, you know your spouse better than anyone else in this auditorium would know them. How did you know your spouse so well? Is it because you read their birth certificate, their LinkedIn profile, their CV? No, you knew them because you had relationship with them for years. There are some things you won't know about a person unless you spend lots of time with them and have a close relationship with them. That's the kind of knowledge that God wants us to know about him. There's a verse in the Bible that puts gnosis next to ginosko, and that verse tells us in no uncertain terms that ginosko is the better way to know God. The book of Ephesians has two famous prayers by Paul the Apostle to the church. The first is Ephesians chapter 1, where he prays for the church to have the full inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ. The second prayer is found in Ephesians chapter 3, where he prays for the church to have a full understanding of God's love unto us. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, sorry, 18 and 19, Paul the Apostle prays for the church that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to ginosko, to know through relationship the love of Christ which surpasses gnosis, head knowledge, that they may be filled with the fullness of God. How does a man come to know the fullness of God's love towards him? It doesn't come from studying root words of what is love and all the different words of love. It may begin with that, but we've got to live at the level that surpasses that. At some point, the man's got to come and just sit there and let God warm his heart. As the Bible says, strangely warm his heart. And as he sits there and experiences God's love experientially, he comes to know God's love in a way that hate knowledge alone cannot do. That's ginosko. Luke 8 verse 10, the ginosko knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that those seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. The secrets of the kingdom of God are not given to the smartest and the most educated people, they are given to those who have the deepest relationship with God. Gnosis aligns our head with God, but ginosko aligns our heart with God. And between the two, God values the heart more. Remember the incident when the prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse to appoint and to anoint the next king of Israel? As they were waiting for David, God said to him, Men look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. It's the heart. When God is looking on the face of the earth to see which man he can use for his purpose, which man he can use to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of God. He's not looking for the most learned man. He's looking for the man whose heart is most after him. That's ginosko. The third type of knowledge that I want to introduce to you today is called idol. Idol is revelation knowledge. When idol is used in the context of referring to God, idol refers to God's perfect knowledge. 
You see, God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from God. When God looks at the situation, He knows everything about that situation. His perfect knowledge, that's called idol. Sometimes God would take a little bit of that knowledge and share it with a person through divine revelation. When that person operates out of that knowledge, that's also called idol. An example of idol in the Bible is Luke chapter 6, verse 7 to 8. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus idol, he knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. Jesus knew their thoughts. It wasn't from a relationship with them. It wasn't because he was studying them. He knew it supernaturally. That's idol. A few months ago, I was traveling and God told me to take one day out to pray. And as I was praying that day, there was one hour that God said to me, pray for your colleague. So I have a colleague who was pregnant. She was in Australia. She's not a believer. I knew when she was due to deliver, but she wasn't due yet. And God said to me, she's delivering right now. Pray for her right now. And so I prayed and I prayed and I prayed until that burden lifted. So this is what they used to call in the old school terms, to pray through something. That means you get a burden and you carry it and you pray and you pray and you pray until it lifts. And then you know and you know that God's will is done and everything is okay. So once that lifted and I knew everything was okay, I thought to myself, since God has moved me to pray for her, I should let her know so that number one, she will know that God is real. Number two, she will know that God loves her and her baby very much and she's looking out for them. So I texted her and said, God told me to pray for you and your baby to have safe delivery. And sure enough, she sent me back a picture of a newborn baby and she said, Dan, your intuition is spot on. But we all know that's not intuition. That's God's idol knowledge. So some things like words of knowledge, prophecy, and some forms of intercessory prayers, these things operate off idol. So a quick recap. The first kind of knowledge is gnosis, head factual knowledge. The second is gnosko, relational knowledge. The third type is revelation knowledge, idol. And now I've come to the fourth one, which is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. This fourth kind of knowledge, very few Christians are aware of it. And so very few Christians intentionally cultivate it. But yet this is the type of knowledge that is linked with being spiritually mature. So it's very important for us to know this fourth type of knowledge, which is called epinosis. Ephesians 4 verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the epinosis knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So on this earth, if we want to be spiritually mature, on this earth, if we want to attain the fullness of the measure of Christ, then the kind of knowledge that we need is epinosis. What is epinosis? Epinosis is consciousness. Romans 3 verse 20, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That word conscious is epinosis, and in other parts of the Bible is the word knowledge. You notice that the word epinosis comes from the word gnosis. If you don't have gnosis, you don't have epinosis. That's why gnosis is so important. We must know what is right and wrong so that we even know what to be conscious of. You can be conscious of the wrong things. We could be conscious of guilt and shame and all sorts of wrong consciousness, 
or we can be conscious of Christ in us, the righteousness, the peace, and the joy that he gives us. Spiritual truths begin in gnosis, but it ends with epinosis. Colossians 1 verse 9 to 10, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge, the epinosis of God. So first we ask God to fill us with gnosis, to help us to know right from wrong, and then we ask God to bring it until we become fruitful for him in epinosis. I'll bring you to another passage that talks about gnosis and epinosis. And from this passage, I want to show us, number one, the benefits of epinosis, and number two, how to get epinosis. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. Let me read 2 to 4, verse by verse, to show you the benefits of epinosis. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge, the epinosis knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Isn't it good to have grace and peace in abundance? But how do we get it? Not through gnosis alone, but through epinosis. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our epinosis knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and goodness. God has given us everything we need for a godly life, but the way we apprehend that into our lives is through epinosis. Verse four, through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. How do we apprehend the great and precious promises? How do we participate in the divine nature and how do we escape this world and its corrupt and evil desires? Through epinosis. Okay, now I want to read verse five to eight for you and I'm going to throw in my own Danmo translation here. And this is an important passage because now it shows us the process in which gnosis is translated into epinosis. We all know how to get gnosis. Read the Bible more, study more, listen to more sermons and good teaching. We know how to get gnosis. This is how it's translated into epinosis. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness gnosis, knowledge, and to your gnosis, self-control. Pause. In other words, don't just know it, do it. Exercise self-control and do it. And to your self-control, perseverance. Don't just do it one time, do it again and again and again. And to your perseverance, godliness. Don't just do it again and again and again. Do it again and again and again until it becomes your character. And to godliness, mutual affection and to mutual affection, love. In other words, if you say you have godly character, show it in the way you treat others. If a man says that he's got gnosis and he says, I've now become spiritually mature, I've apprehended this truth in my life, is there a standard in the Bible, a yardstick by which to measure and says that yes, he really now has graduated to epinosis? There is, that's called love. When that truth is expressed out of his life in love, that man has moved from just knowing it in his head until becoming his character and displaying God through him. 
If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge, epinosis of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if we have epinosis, our lives will be effective and productive for God. But if we don't have epinosis, our lives will not be effective or productive for God. Every believer, every Christian knows in our head, we know that God is grieving for a lost world. Every day, people die and they go to hell. Some have never heard the gospels and some reject the gospel. But everyone who passes from the land of the living and goes to hell, there is no coming back for them. Every soul that is separated from God for eternity, God's heart is grieving for them. We know this in our head, but who are the ones that God can use to save the lost? It is those who have caught the burden of God in our own hearts. We say, God, I know you're grieving. I know it up here, but share it with me, Lord. Share it with me here. And God puts a burden for the lost. And that man goes out and he says, God, I see the lost and I see they are perishing and it weighs on my soul. I don't want to throw this away. I want to hold on to it to the day I die. But God, you need to use me as a soul winner. Don't let my life pass and be for nothing. Use me to share the gospel. Use me to win people to you. It's those who have caught the heart of God, the consciousness of God's sorrow over this issue that God can use to stand between the living and the dead. As Christians, we all know in our head that God hates sexual immorality. We know that in our head. But yet Christians go out there and they live sexual immoral lives. Some look at immoral things on the internet. Some watch TV and literally every episode of the TV show they are watching has sexual immorality and they are not bothered by it. They know in their head this is not right, but in their hearts they are not troubled by it. That's not the kind of life that God can use. The kind of life that God can use are the ones that God will share his consciousness of his heart with the person to the point that they say, oh God, what have we done? Lord, we have sinned and we have sinned greatly against you. God, please have mercy on us. Lord, we need to change and this tide of sexual immorality is so great, God. I don't know where to begin. Lord, it needs to be you. Send your Holy Spirit, God, to convict us, to give us righteousness and holiness that we need. Lord, give us good teaching. Restore us, God. The people who God can use to use for intercede for a nation and pray for them to come against sexual immorality are not the ones who know that God doesn't like it, it's the ones who know it in here that God really hates sexual immorality. It's not what we know that makes us productive, it's what we catch in our consciousness that decides whether or not we are productive or effective for God. So now I have explained to you and you understand the concept of epinosis, consciousness. What I want to do for the rest of our time is to make this practical. I want to talk to us now about the love of God, and I want us to catch it in our spirits and catch a new and fresh epinosis of God's love in us. From here on, don't listen to me with your head. Okay? You're all wonderful Christians, you know the Bible, and you know in your head that God loves you to infinity and beyond. Nothing I say is going to add more to your head. 
But listen to me with your heart. I want to try and help us to catch something of God's love in us. God's love in us is epinosis. Philippians 1 verse 9, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in epinosis and depth of insight. Love can abound more and more. It can grow as we grow in the consciousness of God's love over us. Romans 5 verse 5 is a beautiful verse and it says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We don't have to wonder and say, do I have God's love? We all do. It's whether or not we recognize it in us. Let me try and help us to recognize it. Parents, you love your children, don't you? But have you ever, like me, in a moment of anger, said something too harsh, raised your voice too loud, did something mean, and after that you went away and you regretted it, and you said, oh, I wish I didn't do that? You did, maybe. Children, you love your parents. Have you ever raised your voice at your parents, been rude to them? Have you ever lied to them? We all have. We love our family members, but our, our love for them did not protect them from our anger and our impulsiveness. There's a better way to respond from. Now let's put family aside for a moment. Let's use a different analogy. I want you to think about somebody that you don't like. Okay, someone that has wronged you, crossed you, and when you think of them, you get a little bit upset. Think about that person. Okay? Now, I want you to think about doing this to that person. Please don't actually do it. They might be sitting next to you. <laughs> Just think about doing this, but don't actually do it. Okay? I want you to think about cursing them, saying something bad, I wish ill upon you. Curse them. How do you feel? Do you feel comfortable cursing a man? No. Something in you stops you from cursing that person. That something in you that is stopping you from cursing that person, that's the love of God in you. That something in you did not say, wait, hold on for just a few minutes. I'm going to make a list of all the good things he has done, all the bad things he has done, and I'm going to see whether or not he's worth me cursing him. No. That something in you instinctively just said, I don't want to curse nobody that something in you doesn't consider the person's wrongdoings and weigh it up. There's something in you covers all sins, forgive all things, is patient and is kind. There's something in you that God's love in you, it endures all things, it bears all things, it believes in all things and it hopes for all things. That's the love of God in us. So maybe now we say, oh, I see it now for the first time. I see God's love in me. We are now conscious of it. Good. What should we do to grow that? We need to exercise self-control. So the next time our temper rises and the old man says, you need to, Arr! we said, no, no, I'm going to exercise self-control. I'm going to go dig deep. I'm going to find God's love in me and I'm going to choose to respond out of God's love. And I'm going to do that not just one time. I'm going to do that again and again and again until my character becomes dead. Everything of me becomes dead. That's the only way I know how to respond. And if we do that in increasing measure, our life will be effective and productive for God. The Bible also says, freely receive, freely give. You can only give 
what you have first received. So if we want to give God's love continually, we need to receive God's love continually. If we want to give God's love in a great measure, then we need to receive God's love in a great measure. Otherwise, even what we have caught in epinosis now will just end up being gnosis later on. For epinosis to continue, we must receive God's love. And so I want to talk to you quickly now about God's love to us. Right now, right now in this very moment, God is here and God is fellowshipping with all of us. If we just check our spirits, it feels very comfortable. I'm talking to you now, but my spirit feels very comfortable. Right now, I'm having a good fellowship with God. You are having good fellowship with God, listening to me too. Question, what did we do to deserve this moment of good fellowship with God right now? Did you fast and pray for eight hours before you came to church this morning? No, we didn't do any of that. Neither you nor me deserve this moment. We didn't do anything for it, yet we have a good moment with God now because God loves us. And not just now, every moment, any time in our life, if we just turn the consciousness to God, He is there and we have good fellowship with Him because He always loves us. His love is unchanging. Some guy could bound me up and take me to the highest mountain, hide me in the deepest cave, send me out to outer space. But even then, if I'm just conscious of God, I enjoy God's fellowship all over again. No matter where I go, I have fellowship because God's love to me is unchanging. God's love to me is even unchanging, even when I sin. A few years ago, I found my secret place. I found a place that I could hang with God real good and it changed my life. And I was so happy, I was in the secret place. I found it by fasting and praying. There was a time I was so hungry for God, I said, I'm gonna just fast and pray. And I said, God, either I get this or I die. And I fasted for months and then I, got, I found a secret place. I was so happy, I was living in it for three months, four months. And then I fell out of it. I fell back into the things of this world and I was so disappointed with myself. The moment that happened, I turned to my wife and I said to her in the mail, I said, dear, I think I need to fast again. And she looked at me and she said, oh. And she was disappointed. I was like, whoa, she's disappointed. And then my son, my three-year-old son, pulled my sleeve and he looked at me and he said, daddy, are you going to fast again? And my heart broke. Until that moment, I didn't realize that my fasting had impacted my family life. I was there with them every meal. I was talking to them, having a good time with them. I just didn't eat what they were eating. They were eating, I was drinking water, and I didn't realize it took a toll on my family life. And God said to me, don't fast again. And so I tried new and creative ways to find my way into the secret place. I found many different ways, not just one way to get into the secret place. I'm the man that could write a book 10 different ways to force your way into the secret place, but all those 10 ways couldn't keep me in the secret place. I could get there for a few months, but almost like clockwork, every three to four months, I would fall out for one or two weeks, every time. And it grieved me and I kept asking God, why does this keep happening to me? Do I not love God enough? And I kept happening and happening and one time I fell out for a good, real good time. I fell out for two whole months. Now, I'm not backsliding, I'm not 
looking at sin and pornography, nothing like that. It just meant that instead of spending the whole day with God, I was spending maybe one hour with God, but it grieved me because I knew the difference and I missed being in the secret place. But try as hard as I could, I could not get into that secret place. And one night I was sitting there and I was grieving unto God and he said to me, son, all this time you've been asking and praying for me to show you how to stand in the secret place and stay there and dwell in my presence all the days of your life. He said, until now, you have drawn near to me based on your love for me. Because you love me, you fast and you pray. You discipline yourself and you disown this and you pray against that and all of that. He says, but even young men go weary and tired. Even young men stumble and fall. And you do that and you wait upon me, you get your strength and off you go again and you try and come near to me. He said, but you have been asking me for a better way and now I'm going to show you the better way. And he said, you must draw near to me, not based on your love for me, but based on my love for you. And I said, God, that sounds awesome. What does it really mean? And he said, what do you feel like doing now? I said, I want to spend time with you. And he says, no, what do you really feel like doing now? I said, I feel like playing video games. <laughs> and he said, okay, go and play video games. I said, surely not, Lord, I'll never touch this stuff. He said, go and play video games. So I turn on the video game, and then he says, right now you're turning me off. He said, don't turn me off. And I realized what he meant. What he meant is that when I start doing worldly things, I assume he doesn't want to do it, so I turn off the consciousness of God. I tell myself later, when I'm a good boy and I spend intentional time with God, then I'll turn on the consciousness of God and have good fellowship with him. But God said, no, no, if you do that, then I can't help you. He said, right now, when you're in the arms of the world, when you don't have the willpower to come to me, right there, turn on my consciousness. And I did. And I thought he was going to convict me about how useless the thing is, you know, how temporal and all of that. He didn't do that. When I turned on the consciousness, I had a good and comfortable moment with him much like how I'm having now, exactly the same as how I'm having now. And I said, Lord, I feel you as much as when I'm preaching, but I'm a good boy then, I'm not so good now, but I still feel you. And I said, Lord, don't you want to talk to me about what I'm looking? And he said, no. He said, I'm just going to talk to you about you, and that's enough. And I just felt God's love all over me. And I said, wow, you really love me. Why, why are you so good to me, God? And in that moment of weakness, it became so apparent to me, the consciousness hit me, that it was never about my behavior, it was always about God's love for me. So cliche, we all know that. But right there, when my weakness is right in front of me, it became so clear and I caught it in my consciousness. Jesus is a mirror. We know many truths about Jesus. We know he's the way, the truth, and the life. We know he's the light in the darkness. And these are all wonderful truths. But do you know that Jesus, everything about him, Jesus as the word in the book of James is a mirror. Jesus and his love is a mirror. Jesus and his glory is a mirror. The face of Jesus is like a mirror. When we look at Jesus, it's so beautiful, so accepting. He, he doesn't tell us what we need to do to be right with God. He simply shows us who we already are to God.
1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that famous love passage. Verse 8, it says, Love never fails. No matter what stronghold of the world is over you, love, God's love, will never fail to break it. Verse 12, it says, Now we see only as a reflection in the mirror, but then we will see face to face. His love right now is a mirror. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 and 18, it says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from all the things of the world that keeps drawing us back to it. And then it goes on to say these beautiful words. It says, Then now we with unveiled faces, as we behold Him, as we admire Him, as we look at Him and His glory, we are transformed into His image. Can you see that? As I look at him, I'm being transformed into his image. Who are you really? Ask yourself this question. Before God, who am I? When God looks at you, who does God see? Does God see the man who is surfing pornography, drinking alcohol, the man with a bad temper, the man who likes to watch Korean drama series? Is that who God sees? Is that who God comes down to fellowship with? Is that who God is going to come and bring to heaven forever one day? No. Jesus said those who come to him will have eternal life. The part of you that will live forever, the part of you that has eternal life, that's the real you and me. Your body is not going to last forever. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> the part of you that loves the world and desires the things of this world, that is not the real you. That also will pass. 1 John 2, 17. The world and its desires will pass. Imagine that. One day, we won't like to watch Korean drama series. Wow, such a thing exists. So that's also not the real us. So then, what else is left? What's the real you and me? You know the bit where we are drawn by His love? First, we look at the things of this world, and then we are conscious of His love. Then we look at the things of this world and we are conscious of his love, even then. And then we look at the things of this world and suddenly the world is not that interesting and we shut it down and we turn and we spend time with him. The bit of us that turns to him, the bit of us that has the consciousness in that moment of his love for us and we respond in worship. The bit that goes, oh Lord, you are beautiful. Oh Lord, I don't even know what to say except I love you. That bit is the real you and me. One million years from now, we'll still be doing the same thing. We don't realize it, but when we turn to him as a response of his love for us, we are actually operating out of the spirit. It's not your head that is responding and worshiping him, it's our spirit. And as we do that longer and longer, as we gaze at him and worship at him, we become familiar for the first time, we become conscious for the first time of the spirit man in me. And we realize that this spirit man is very different from the one who is living in the world. And the more I see the difference, the more I live in the spirit and I begin to operate in the spirit. And then the more I operate in the spirit, life begins to change. I don't have time to go there, I need to end this, but just to plant a seed in you, do you know that many promises in the Bible were given to our spirit man, not our natural man. When God said you will live forever, eternal life, that was given to the spirit man, not to the natural man. When he said greater things than this you will do, that's not given to 
the natural man that's given to the spirit man. But so many times we apprehend God's promises with our, the consciousness of our natural man and nothing happens. We are convinced intellectually that it is true, but nothing seems to happen in our lives. But when we are walking the spirit and living in the spirit, all of God's words seem to manifest or come to pass in our life in an increasing measure because the Christian life is a spirit-filled life. Amen? Praise God. Give me a moment of uh, privacy. Everyone, just bow your heads and close your eyes. Worship team, you can come back up. Friend, if you are here this morning, you've never heard of the love of Jesus. But this morning, as you are here, your heart is strangely warm, as the Bible would describe it. That's the love of Jesus over your life. That's his touch here. As you take the effort to come here and hear his word, as you hear his word, he touches you and your heart is strangely warm. That sense of love can grow in you. It can grow and become such a powerful force that it would chase away any fear, any anxiety, any dark thoughts, any addictions. But you see, friend, if you walk out of here without receiving him into your life, this sense that you feel will go away after half an hour. You won't have it. But there's a way for you to carry this love of God in your life, not just now, but every day of your life. And it will grow and it will grow and it will change you in ways you could not ever imagine. But for that to happen, you need the person himself. You need Jesus himself to come into your life. If you are here, and you say, I want to invite Jesus into my life this morning, would you raise your hand? Just give me a wave and I want to pray for you. Is there anyone here this morning? Thank you. I see your hand, sister. For the sake of one, it would have all been worth it. Thank you, Lord. But is there any others? Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Here at the front. Thank you. Four precious souls today. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you. I see your hand in the side. Thank you, sister. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, that they would know your love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I see your hand there. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray together. Everyone pray with me. Dear Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know you in ways that I can only know through relationship. 
I want you to come into my heart, Lord, and fill me with a joy I never knew. Fill me with a peace I never knew. I want you to change me and show the world what the love of God can change a man. Dear Jesus, take all my sins, take all my shame, take all my wrongdoings and my guilt, and give me you. Today I accept you into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. One more prayer. One more prayer. This one is for believers. And then I'll close. If you are here this morning as a believer, and you said, Oh Lord, all this time I have genuinely wanted to know you, but all my efforts were in accumulating gnosis. I really wanted to know you, but I kept studying and kept listening to more sermons, studying, hoping to get close to you. But today, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you the things I can only know through relationship. I want God to be such an open vessel that you can put your idol revelation knowledge through me to bless the world. I want to share your heart, Lord. I want my heart to break for the things that break yours. And I want to know your love, Lord. Really, really, really know your love in practical ways. Oh, Lord, would you help me? If that's you, would you raise your hand? And I want to pray for you as a believer today. Thank you. Even if you're online, just raise your hand. God sees and God knows. Father, you are all-knowing and you see every hand that goes up. Wherever and whenever a man is hearing these words and he's responding to it, Lord, your words are spirit and they give life. So, Father, right now in the name of Jesus, Father, I ask you, Please, Lord, these ones who are asking for it, I want them to know, I want them to really, really catch this consciousness of God's love that will fill them anew, God, that would change their walk with you, that would plant them firmly in you, God, that you would show them the way to come to you, not based on their love for you, but based on your love for them. They know that you love them, Lord, but show it to them in practical steps on a daily life, God, that they would be planted. And every day of their life, from strength to strength, from measure to measure, God, they will sing and they will rejoice over your love for them, God. And your love for them would overflow in such a way, God, such a tangible way, God, that the world around them would experience your love, that the world around them, Lord, would encounter you and not them. Lord, I pray this. Bless them, God, the words that have been spoken. Plant them and protect the seed, God, so that it does not get stolen by the enemy. And this I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let me pray a benediction and then we're going to close. May the love of the Father May the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit fill us completely. May we walk with firm assurance every step, knowing that 
He has gone before us to pave our way. He is behind us to catch us and protect us. He is with us to be our companion and our guide. He is beneath us to lift us up. And He is over us to shelter us. And most of all, He is within us to love us. May the love of God be tangible and practical to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. God bless you.